And I realized I was also much better about talking about art than actually making art, um, which is actually a big blessing because I'm glad I didn't realize that when I was 40 or 50. Um, and uh, <laughs> after, after years of struggling to make it as an artist, recognize that maybe you were uh, better at exactly, selling Exactly, exactly. So I, I, I recognize that pretty much like sophomore year in college. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales, or visit us at liveart.io. This week's episode is an interview with Esther Kim Verrett. She started various small fires in Los Angeles as a project space over a decade ago. Since that time, has grown to become one of the most talked about galleries in LA, representing artists like Kalita Rawls, the Harrisons, and Nikki S. Lee. Kim Verrett followed that success by opening an outpost in Seoul, Korea, making her one of the first independent galleries to open there. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Esther, thank you for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. I wanted to talk a bit about your history as a gallerist. I mean, you are in this very interesting spot as Los Angeles has become more and more central to the global art world. And as there's a growing um, art center in Seoul, South Korea, you are one of the few gallerists in both places and not anywhere else. And so I thought we could talk a little bit how you got to this position, why you're in LA, uh, a little bit about being in Korea, but let, let's start a little bit uh, about how you got into opening a gallery in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, I also have some news to share, and it's not really official yet, although I have the lease signed and the staff lined up, um, is that in, this, in the spring, Yes. I will be opening a third location in Dallas, Texas. I only start there because um, it fits so well into your question. So I was born and raised in Dallas. I am a second generation of immigrant parents whose parents were also immigrants in South Korea from North Korea. So my family is entirely North Korean and every generation we've immigrated to somewhere else. My entire family ended up in Dallas including all my cousins and, and such, um, for a number of very circuitous and serendipitous reasons. But I was born and raised there in a suburb called Plano, Texas. And um, I went to a Christian school for 13 years, Southern was raised Southern Baptist, very conservative, but also in an environment where I think I was very interested in the arts but felt a lot of resistance culturally to exploring that. And it actually, in, in some interesting ways, and I talked to other Texans about this, it both frustrated me and pushed me to really forge my own path um, at an early age. And when I was 
looking for colleges, I had the choice of going to somewhere like Cooper Union or going to somewhere like Yale. I mean, I, I started off as an artist, I would say, but I also loved writing and exploring other topics. And um, so when I got to Yale, I was both an art and art history major and philosophy major. And I um, ended up majoring in art history because I just loved how it combined a lot of these different areas of my interest. And, and I realized I was also much better about talking about art than actually making art. Um, which is actually a big blessing because I'm glad I didn't realize that when I was 40 or 50. Um, After years of struggling to make it as an artist, recognize that maybe you were uh, better at exactly, selling Exactly, exactly. So I, I, I recognized that pretty much like sophomore year in college, and um, which was actually around the time that I took my first internship in New York City over the summer, and I worked at Pace Uptown in their PR department. And I was very um, interested in how all of these things, uh, the mediatization of art and its production, the, the actual uh, relationships that go into kind of promoting an artist, um, making them known, giving them a platform, all of those things became incredibly fascinating to me. And the infrastructure of art in the market became incredibly fascinating to me. So much so that I actually ended up really doing a lot of work early on in my art history career on systems, on market systems and systems aesthetics. And then after Yale, I ended up, I mean, kind of long story short, I ended up going to um, New York, moving to New York, like many people that graduate from college and you're stuck in Connecticut, you're like, where do I go next? You go to New York. Close by. Close by. And, um, and so I was in an MA program at Columbia and then I matriculated into the PhD program there. In art history or in, in art history. Yeah. Good old Avery Hall. Exactly. Exactly. So you, I, you know it, I know it very well. Um, I spent many years up in, on 116th street. I, in that process, I became really interested. I mean, I wrote my PhD dissertation, well, my thesis on Andrea Frazier, but then my dissertation really ended up being focused on certain movements that were happening in the late 60s that enabled museums to partner with corporations and, and have that, what, what kind of trickle-down effect that had on uh, minimalism and post-minimalism at that moment. So, so you've always been aware of the corporate and institutional structures that shape art. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it became very clear to me early on what the mechanisms were, um, and it became really natural for me to enter the art market and art world um, via the lens of the gallery because, you know, if you start looking at the history of art, of, of, of post-war American art, I mean, none of what we know in art history books would exist without early gallery systems. Very much so. And the kind of archives that were left over from those gallery systems and the kind of recordings that were left over from that. So uh, I think, um, and, and then institutions uh, also. So... Yeah, I mean, I've always thought, because I came from art history, really about how art history is made and how access to knowledge or practices are, um, like what it means, you know, what that term gatekeeper means. I mean, Pierre Bourdieu was so kind of, he was like a cornerstone in me thinking about really how these mechanisms worked. And so actually my first gallery was um, in partnership. I was 24 and I was in grad school. I was doing my PhD. I was teaching, I was TAing at Columbia. And then I had two girlfriends in the city that were 26. We were very young. 
And we pulled together our money and we opened our first space in West Soho on Van Damme Street, right by, at that time, what was uh, where Gavin Brown was. And opened it, great experience in the sense that I kind of got a sense of what to do to open a space. Also great experience in learning that closing a space is one of the hardest, is, is much harder than opening a space. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no one ever has an exit plan. Everyone thinks things are going to be a raging success and no one really Nobody, yeah, thinks through exactly, <laughs> getting exactly. out. And it was actually right around uh, a little bit before the market crash of 2008 that I, I pulled out, which at that time seemed like a very hard thing to do and like kind of the end of the world for me. But I, my parents were very adamant that if the partnerships weren't working, that it's better to get out now than later. And so, um, and they really wanted me to focus on finishing the PhD because they were afraid that I wouldn't really finish, which, you know, I'm still ABD, by the way. <laughs> it's like... And I will probably be ABD for a very, very long time. But um, You are not the only one. I am not the only one. Um, so after that experience, met my husband-to-be. We moved out to LA. I was trying to finish my dissertation out there, doing research at the LACMA archives. As a procrastination method, I opened another space in my house, which was on the ground floor of um, a townhouse in Venice, and just started inviting artists over, uh, and that was the original VSF space. And um, and I actually didn't start the gallery at that moment, at that particular moment. I didn't start various small fires as like a as a gallery that represented artists. It was, I think, really at that time, more of a project space in my mind. And I really thought for a moment um, that I could do this without representing artists. And as a gallery grows and becomes more successful, I think you realize that representing an artist is really, and kind of dedicating your belief in that practice is really the right thing to do. And um, especially if they're risking what they've made or what they've had and giving it to you and, and, and asking you to be a steward of it. So opened in, in LA and it wasn't until I got to LA that I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, for so long, thought it was a disadvantage to be a Korean American in this field because you work in New York or you're in New York and everybody is, is excuse my language, white um, and, and Euro, Eurocentric in their, you know, especially in New York, everybody's looking at Europe. And I didn't have those connections to Europe. And I always felt like I was at a disadvantage. And it really wasn't until... I moved to LA and got very close to Koreatown here and like just the diversity here. And I was like, wait a second. I was like, this makes so much sense for me to, for me to retrace the steps of my parents or like my, my relatives or my lineage and go and open and do something in Seoul. I mean, Seoul though is like, everybody's like, you were so early. And I was like, no, actually I thought I was very late. Like when I opened four years ago, like I, I, I knew like K-beauty, K-pop, K-drama, all of that stuff was happening. And Korea has the highest per capita of collectors in Asia. Koreans have incredible collectors. They have incredible institutions and they have no tax on art. So I knew that it was ripe for something. And um, I really kind of rushed to open it um, because I felt like, the timing was then. So let's skip skip back for, for a second. Sure. You said you were originally thinking about doing this as a secondary market uh, gallery? No, no, not secondary market. 
market, just as a project space, just doing, oh. yeah. Uh, I'm not a good secondary market dealer. I always say I'm, I'm much better, I'm, I'm much more talented at burying bodies than digging them up. I, I think I'm, I, I love being a primary market dealer and the secondary market thing is definitely a part of my brain. I still, like, if I do it, 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 it feels like I'm really straining my, <laughs> my mind to do it. <laughs> so how did you find artists to represent through doing some project work with them? Um, so it's, it was a combination of things. Like when I moved to LA, um, I had been doing so much research on artists in the 60s and 70s, Los Angeles artists in the 60s and 70s, because it was part of my dissertation at that moment. And, um, and in that process, like, for example, um, Newton Harrison, like the Harrisons, um, yeah. considered the founders of the ecological art movement. I was actually interviewing him for my dissertation while I had various small fires and in the process of interviewing him, because I was trying to do both at the same time. I was like, wait a second, this work is so important. You are making works about the climate change, like about climate change and the climate disaster in 1969. And like, what, what is this history? Like, and then you look at the founding of the Earth Day movement, which was in 1971 and where 20 million Americans came out and marched. And that was the start of the um, Environmental Protection Agency that Reagan felt like he had to sign in. And it's just like, like there was so much there at that moment. And I really felt like art history had glossed over that, the way that art history is, had glossed over looking at things like land art, for example. I mean, land art isn't about Smithson and these heroic gestures onto nature. There were artists and activists that were using land art to talk about how to create systems that feed back into nature, that regenerate instead of just take away. And, um, and I felt like it was really important early on for us to be a platform and a champion of some of that rewriting um, that needed to be done. And I feel like, you know, I think we're kind of known more as often with about the hot artists that we have or whatever it is, like the hot market artists. But I think our, the core of our program has really always been about uh, social and environmental consciousness. That um, was the other part of the question. So, you know, you're in LA, you're meeting artists with through projects and all, you begin to represent them. You open in uh, Korea. It's not like, I mean, I, I don't think many of your artists are Korean. Some may be Korean Americans like yourself. You might have one or two. You're bringing artists that you work with to Korean collectors. Yeah, so my long-term strategy for Korea has been, um, because I know Koreans very well, like I grew up, I spent all of my summers in Korea, I'm fluent in the Korean language, my parents are very Korean, I was raised very, very Korean. I know that once you kind of hit that threshold of making money, like like a lot of families and individuals that come into money through certain kind of success, I think Korea is often not multi-generational money, it's new wealth. And people want to play catch up, right? So they buy the Louis Vuitton purses and the Chanel. And, you know, it's it's really about um, Western luxury or outside luxury that kind of sets them. And then I think for me, I knew that it was important to use my strength coming from the States and having a deep familiarity with the market and the, the artists here um, to bring that as a way to get the um, collectors there on board with what we're doing. Well, I was just going to say, it, that's one of the conundrums of 
managing an artist's career these days or selling art is half of the world is buying art as a luxury item and half of the world is buying art as a, a, a cultural object, engagement and ideas or identities and so forth. And I, I imagine if you're an art dealer, that's a bit of a delicate line to have to tread. You got to sell the art. Our artists are, are uh, living off of the, yeah. the sales, but you also have to you know manage the expectations and you uh, clearly want collectors who are supportive of your artists. And I was sort of curious when you were saying that, sort of how that fits when you know know somewhat of this mentality. Is it is it a kind of like a turn, you know, the old joke about uh, art collectors or people who ran out of wall space from decorating their ha- house and all? Is it mm-hmm part of the evolution or is that also part of like the the pitch they don't have to be exclusionary i think the most advanced collectors in the world are in america and i i really believe that because i do think that i look at kind of the 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 very good american collectors that take risks that have historically bought without a mathematical calculation of their return um they have bought in ways that felt much more philanthropic. Um, and I think that, that that was culturally true. It's changed, it's changed a lot, even in the past five years, I would say. But I think that I have realized that the LA market and the LA gallery for me, which is the biggest space that I have, is the space that I will continue to do the most amount of experimentation in the kind of art we show. Because you feel confident of of your sort of relationship with your collectors there that they'll come with you or they'll... I think the collectors here, the collectors that we have here, have the incredible capacity and ability to be a part of trend making. And I don't think that collectors in Korea are necessarily positioned in a place quite yet to do that. And there's still, there's still a lot of catch up happening. And so if I can establish a practice here in LA, which I've done over and over and over and taken it to Korea, it's much easier than me trying to establish a a new practice in Korea and trying to take it over here. If that makes sense. That makes a great deal of sense. I mean, it, it, yeah. from the outside, we don't think of these multi-space galleries as having that kind of, you know, um, uh, metropole and hinterland uh, uh, approach. But it's surely true whether they're, you know, started in New York and moved other places or the other way around Mm -hmm. that, you know, there's a core audience. And if you have, you know, a good relationship with that audience, you can do a lot more. Mm -hmm. And then if you've worked out those ideas, both for the artist and for the collectors, it's much easier to present that in a new location where you've kind of distilled it to here's what works best. Yeah. And I'm actually, you know, it's not like I opened VSF and we started off in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, we were we're in LA. I'm very proud of the fact that we're in LA and I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that LA is a city of innovators and innovation. And we're in a city where people are setting trends that are international trends. And I really believe in our audience here. And I believe in the sophistication of our audience here. And so because I have so much confidence in what we represent in Los Angeles, I have no problem in taking that and importing it to other parts of the world. 
So why do you think that is? I mean, you know, Los Angeles has been a major city for decades. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the joke is always that it's, you know, it's a company town because the entertainment industry, but that's also a very sophisticated, global and wealthy industry. It, it feels like it's only been in the last decade that Los Angeles ha- has become this cultural center where all the things you just described can take place, that it's not about, oh, I have to go to New York to see what uh, what's happening, that the artists are there, the collectors are there, and now yeah. the galleries are there. I think in the last 10 years, I mean, I think what you said in the last 10 years is correct. I, when I first moved to Los Angeles, it was interesting because I came from New York and people in Los Angeles felt like I had a lot of street cred because I came from New York. And there were still a lot of collectors that would rather buy from New York galleries than galleries in their own hometown. And it was something that I heard dealers here complaining about all the time. Biggest dealers even complaining about. And it was a paradox, but I think in the last 10 years especially, Los Angeles on the cultural end has become confident in its own abilities. And there has been a lot of investment um, I mean, you think of the Hammer Biennial, uh, which is about, I mean, there's no other biennial that's only about artists of that city. You know, um, you think about Getty, the Getty, and what the, the initiatives, Pacific Standard Time, all those things. There's been a huge cultural investment in the institutions themselves to double down on their own city. And Los Angeles galleries in a very similar way, I think have done that as well. The, the kind of core Los Angeles galleries and a lot of our artists, if you look, are Los Angeles based. And they might not be incredibly well known outside of Los Angeles, but they're very influential for the community. And, um, when I realized that, that it, it really is A, my responsibility to highlight those practices being a Los Angeles gallery. And I will get to your other portion about Korean artists because I do think it's, it is important to say, I mean, this next summer, Koenig and I, so I've been talking to Johan who also opened a space and, and Johan has pitched to me a number of times, let's collaborate on something. I'm like, okay, this is what, like, I think we should collaborate on. We decided that this is actually the best move is I was like, let's do a show on Korean contemporary artists in our two spaces in Korea and really double down on the community in Korea. We do now show more than ever. I mean, for me, the Korean American experience is something that obviously resonates with me in such a way that I think the Korean American experience is a globalized experience. And it is, mm-hmm. um, and all those feelings of alienation and confusion and hybrid, like hybridity and um, hapticness, all of those things are incredibly important for all of us in this um, on a bigger scale for so many other individuals, not just Korean Americans. It's it's a kind of state that we're all living in um, to a certain degree. And um, and that's also one that I could easily get behind. Like I can't really that easily get behind a certain kind of like very Korean experience um, in the same way. And, but I am kind of, we are, I am working on bringing Korean practices actually here to LA and introducing them because in Korea there isn't really an audience for Korean practices. It's like everybody wants the other thing. <laughs> what they, yeah. Well, that's always been a problem in Japan too. I thought that um, you know it was very hard for Japanese artists to build enough of an audience, and for a long time, uh, you know, Japanese 
collectors were more interested in in European or American art. Uh, and and now we have a number of um, Japanese ar artists who are getting quite global. We also have you know this whole kind of um, secondary market. It you know based in Hong Kong at least for the auctions, but that is kind of Pan Asian and has you know a roster of artists that everyone is familiar with. They might be you know more of a lingua franca, mm -hmm. but they they overlap and they're you know there's enough familiarity with with them that uh, you know people sort of recognize recognize them as global artists mm -hmm. as well. I mean, I think your your point about um, the Korean-American immigrant experience is interesting just because in America, at least, there's there's often like kind of like a nominated hybrid minority. You know, I'm mm -hmm. sort of thinking of of the Godfather movies and the emphasis on a very sort of sense of what it was to be Italian American uh, and all right. at a time, and and the popular culture uh, impression of Jewish Americans in the 70s and 80s and, right. and all. And right. I do think we've moved on to there are groups that in America now that have become much more the kind of the immigrant experience that everyone sort of thinks about or shares right. in terms of novels or TV shows or whatever. And Korean Americans are certainly very prominent. Uh, you know, you mentioned you're from Dallas. There is a large community in Texas of uh, Korean Americans. Mm -hmm. This is to sort of bring it back. So are you talking about Korean American artists that you can show globally and in Korea or finding Korean artists that you can show? Yeah, I mean, for example, the current exhibition up in Los Angeles is um, Kyungmi Shin, who is actually, a lot of people know her husband, um, Todd Gray, the artist, and, um, but Kyungmi is in her late 50s and has been working for a very long time on mining her family photographs from Korea. And she came, immigrated over when she was 16, so she's, she feels very much a, more, much more of a hybrid than I think I am, because I was born in the States. I feel more American than Korean, to be honest. <laughs> um, but uh, An American who spends a lot of time in Korea rather than a Korean who's been in America. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, if I have to, you know, and like my husband's Jewish and my kids are both. So I, I do feel much more of a kind of emotional tug, but to the American experience, which is fundamentally a, an experience of dealing with clashing cultures all the time. I so. That was the the best of the American experience was the fact that uh, we were polyglot and you'd have, you know, uh, uh, Irish lawyers using Yiddish in New York, yeah, know, kinds exactly. of things, and everyone thinking they're an expert on Szechuan food or, or oh, whatever. Oh, oh, yes, hundred yeah, I mean, percent. And to the extent uh -huh. that that kind of uh, cultural diversity, which used to be stuck in New York and LA, has at least in urban centers around the country, has become uh, more prevalent, is one of the positive sides. The you know what we've lived through the last five years has been the negative right, uh, right. Uh, side of it. All. But I mean, the fact that you're you're thinking of opening in Dallas is is a sign that there's demand and people want to be closer to someone who can, you know, give them the experience of, of seeing artists and learning more about them rather than doing it on a, you know, on a trip to uh, Los Angeles once or twice a year. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think as complicated as this might sound, it's like, and a lot of people don't realize or know that I'm from Dallas or a Texan because 
um, you know, everybody thinks of me as an Angelino, I guess, or Korean, or, you know, it's like, or that Korean American girl. Like, it's just like... That chick, that chick from New York who showed up and started selling art here. Yeah, exactly. So I really tried to hide for a while that I was from Texas because I had such a... When I left when I was 17, I didn't, I didn't think I would turn back. Like, I, I really didn't. I was like, that's, that's my past. This is my future. And I kind of made a very clear line between, like, pre-Dallas and post-Dallas. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I always joke around, but I came from such a sheltered world where I, my school was, um, the science was all pro-creationism. It was a pro, we had a pro-creationist library. Can, can we go back to that? Because you said something fascinating at the beginning here about having a cultural resistance to the arts. And I wasn't sure if you meant that you yourself or that, you know, your family, your school and uh, and all, or maybe it's a combination of the, the, the two. I think it was, uh, my, my family was always supportive of the art part. Um, I think it was, the, it was really in school that I felt like, like you were either on the drill team, you played football, like, you know, it was like, it was a very a soccer, you know, as a girl, like it, it was very specific to, yeah, there's no art team in, in high school. Yeah. There's no art team. You know, it was just like, it was just a very kind of marginal thing. And, um, and I liked the teachers there and they helped me a lot, but it was also a very kind of regional experience. And actually like I, when I was in high school, I, they, I entered a lot of art competitions, like state art competitions and different things like that. And I actually like ended up winning a lot of art competitions, a lot of scholarships to different schools and stuff like that in Texas because of the art stuff. But it was almost like nobody else really cared because it wasn't like a thing at the school. (laughs) (laughs) Did did you, did you paint or draw or? I was a painter. Plastic? Yeah. Um, oil painting. Do you continue to paint as a hobby or is that like tried that done? Well, it's funny. I, you know, my, I have young kids now, so, and they really like my daughter, especially who's four loves crafts and loves making art. And so I love getting the materials in my hands again, because it, tr- it has so many, like it triggers a lot of memories for me. So the short answer is no, I don't, I don't have a studio. I don't paint. I don't really make anything like that anymore but I'm also such a sucker for great painting I I think you know I there was an artist that I just met over zoom a week ago and I just I I fell in love with his Instagram because he had so many videos of him just painting (laughs) and I was like the process the process of just painting and I was just like I was so mesmerized and I was just like I remember those smells. I remember the feeling. I remember that sensation of, of like running a brush, you know, in a certain way. And I was like, and I just zoomed with him and I was like, would you like to do a show? I know we haven't met, but. So how important is Instagram these days to finding new artists? I'm, I'm constantly, you know, running across places where, you know, uh, I was reading something that Matthew Wong had written about an artist that he basically only knew his work because he lived out in Edmonton through yeah. Instagram. And, and it certainly seems, I mean, obviously with the pandemic, it's, it's curtailed our ability to get around, but it certainly seems like that has become a much more important way of looking for finding leads and getting to know someone. A hundred percent. I mean, I don't, I, I think it's the main tool for so many gallerists, unfortunately, now. It's like, I mean, when someone tells me about an artist, the first thing I do is open Instagram and see if I can look at their page. 
And also when I advise, you know, young artists, I'm like, can you delete the pictures of your dog? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> or whatever it is. Like, right. You get frustrated with them if they haven't gotten the clue, like, Hey, this is basically a gallery and you need to structure it and, and edit just the works that yeah. show you at your best. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Let's go back on that because you said something else fascinating earlier that you were very interested in. And this is pre Instagram, this experience, the mediatization of art and its production. Mm-hmm art as media and artists as media figures has really changed. And I'm just, I'm most struck. You, you've been clearly thinking about this before it started and you've lived through it. What your, your experience has been. I think first we have to start with how we define media in in each era, right? Like I think before, I mean, before Instagram, before internet, you would talk about books, the photography of artworks and, and its dissemination through books. And Instagram is is essentially kind of like that, but accelerated and democratized. But the problem with that is that like you had to have a lot of capital and you had to have, there were only certain number of publishing companies and da, da, da. So it's like the structures have all changed. It goes back to what you were saying about gatekeepers, right? I mean, the whole purpose of the internet was to, to get rid of the gatekeepers. Now you've got people, if you build up a big enough Instagram fo- following, right. you can have a direct way of shaping your relationship to your audience and not just the ones who might buy your work, but the people who you know understand it and relate to it. I think it's changed so much so that, and this is just, a, I'm just thinking yeah. off the top of my head. Like, I, I feel like as you were talking, I was like, oh my gosh, are galleries the old Random House or Simon & Schuster? Or like, you know. (laughs) But they're still here. I mean, that's what's interesting. They they didn't, we all thought they were going to be completely destroyed. Now there there are fewer of them. Mm -hmm. I think that just sort of the terrain shifts and people who can uh, make the right connection can thrive in in different parts of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the only um, thing that young or mid-tier galleries have going for them is their youth. (laughs) <laughs> it's is is there relevancy <laughs> that you know if you're looking from the vantage point of being like a 70 or 80 or 90 year old dealer you're like I need to stay relevant somehow because I know that and and, and I'm sure these are the conversations that happen at Random House <laughs> you know or Simon and Schuster or you know uh, I years ago like, I worked at those places and I can tell you I, I was once in uh, having a dinner with some people at Penguin who were talking about finding some young kid who, with a leather jacket who could, you know, to be an editor. I mean, it was just like someone who was hip and cool and knew knew what was happening with the kids. I have to say, like, the, the our market remains surprisingly conservative and surprisingly committed to these big houses. Is that because the, you know, the buyers are nervous to do something because the risk or is it something else having to do with like the financialization of the things and all? I think it's probably um, both. Again, it's like, I, I feel like it's, you look at the fashion houses and it's like what's happened, what's happened with like LVMH and a lot of these kind of bigger fashion conglomerates and the concentration of wealth. And I think that the reason why they keep on growing is because the people want to invest or buy things that kind of have the the aura of that of that stamp. I think it's similar in art. I think so too, but I think like you're on the cusp of 
becoming one of those. Oh, I mean, that was what, the whole reason to talk to you is is that you have established a reputation out in LA. You're expanding to uh, other cities, not necessarily trying to go to London or New York or uh, Hong Kong. You know, you're 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 going to these places, and I think that's exactly the way it will work. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um... There's no, when you're when you're the small guy and just waiting around for your lunch money to be taken, um, <laughs> like, you've got to find ways to. <laughs> you, know. you decide not to wait around anymore. Yeah, you can't wait around. <laughs> um, and uh, and so you know a lot of it has to do with looking at what your advantage. You know, like when when that big guy comes and you're like. The Goliath comes and you're like, listen, like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm smaller than you, but I know how to speak Korean. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Eventually, all weaknesses become strengths. That is my my belief. Yeah, in this world. <laughs> it's just kind of a resourcefulness factor of, of being the little guy <laughs> more than anything else, and so. Um, but luckily in this era when things are changing so quickly and um, often the, the bigger Goliaths can't adapt as quickly, um, can't change course as quickly because you're not the little guy. This is when the little guys, if you position yourself right, can... Can thrive. Yeah, thrive. no, and, this, yeah. and, and that, that, that really has been your, your advantage these last few years, even including, you know, during this uh, pandemic, which I'm sure has been challenging. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I could talk to you all afternoon, and I would like to uh, at another time talk to you all, all afternoon. But for the purposes of the podcast, I think uh, I'm going to say thank you so much for uh, taking the time. This ha- really, truly has been fascinating. Oh, thank you. I look forward to hearing how this podcast turns out. Yeah, thank you. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it. <laughs>